Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Cast. You are listening to the internet's only college football podcast. I am Spencer Hall. I am joined as I am every week by Jason Kirk. Say say hello, Jason. I'll say the figures. The events. Ooh. There's a whole other thing, but that's that's enough for now. And Holly Anderson. Hello, Holly. Hello. <laughs> that's that's a historical hello. Hello. It's, it sounds full of portent. Portent and mystery and yes. cheese fries. Folks, Boom. do you hear a great rumbling? In the east? In my chest. Jason, how did you make this? Jason, how did you make this happen? How did you get the one and only Hardcore Histories, Dan Carlin, on the Shutdown Fullcast? Yeah, let's give our credit where it's due because you may have seen a lot of this take place via the uh, Shutdown Fullcast Twitter account. But Jason did land this fish. I just tweeted at him. 
Bird catches fish. I tweeted it, Dan. I'm trying to hype you up. Come on, I I understand. I understand. The understatement is the comedy for me because here's what happened. I tweeted at Dan knowing full well what would happen, (laughs) knowing that our overlapped audience would pounce Mm -hmm. on it and that there would be so many replies that Dan would definitely see it. But all I did was I tweeted at Dan. Thank you to everybody who piled upon that tweet and told the illustrious marvelously voiced Dan Carlin to come on our show because guess what? Dan Carlin came on our show. Dan Carlin came on our show. We should he, he's right here. Yeah, we should listen to it right this now. This is crazy. He's going to look at us weird if we don't throw to him soon. Yeah, they were all, uh, our listeners were very excited about the idea of you coming on, so they'll, they'll love pretty much whatever you have to say. Well, that's called we should have lowered the expectations, shouldn't we, and then overperformed. But oh, we'll, listen, our <laughs> expectations. We have, we have a high quotient of war dads yeah. uh, in our audience, so... What is a yeah. war dad? Uh, the, the dads <laughs> with the books about war. Yeah, we'll oh, ex- oh, we, can, we can explain the concept of war dad to you at length uh, so we, we drive the point home because it's, it's a core constituency We're for us. We're probably the only college football show that's ever had a, a halftime quiz where we had the listeners name all the aircraft carriers at Midway in alphabetical order. <laughs> and someone nailed it. And yeah. a kid did it. Like yeah, a, a kid nailed it. Yeah. Did it. Yeah. Are you sure that they didn't have a book in front of them, though? How's the quality control on those kind of questions? No, we, we, were, were we were at a library. Yeah. But yeah. there were no books within that room. It was it was in Ann Arbor. If that th- that does seem like more of a likely place for someone to pull off that feat. Maybe, maybe I was there not that long ago. It looks very smart on campus. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, Jason, I'll let you I'll let you intro here. Well, we are joined today by uh, one of the, I think, in the podcast universe, one of the people that you, the full cast reader, have long most wanted to hear on this program. Uh, we are joined by Dan Carlin of Hardcore History and many other fine shows. Dan, a Colorado Buffaloes fan, if I have that right. Graduate, uh, yeah, alumni, yeah. <laughs> Dan, you, uh, your years, if I have the math right, your years at Colorado, they sort of happen to coincide with one of the, one of the peaks of historical Colorado football. Uh, not when I got there. When I got there, the fumes of a one in ten season were still lingering, <laughs> uh, and a horrible, you know, all kinds of coaching problems and everything else. And then um, the year I got there, it started sort of, you know, uh, trending upward a little bit. But I don't think anybody was getting too excited, you know, with uh, with the Freedom Bowl or whatever the bowls we were. We were just happy to have any bowls. And then while I was there, we got darn good. And then the year after I, I graduated, that's when the national championship happened. Okay, so that's still nice timing, though. You you were able to buy a low. Perfect, and... I think perfect timing, actually. Yeah, yeah. He did the Peyton Manning? Yeah, he did. Again? He did my thing. He did. He yeah. did ninety four, ninety eight at Florida, basically. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you. I mean, that's that's like a uh, a highly fortunate time to to become deeply invested in Colorado football as uh, you know the late eighties, the early nineties, right around there, the McCartney era. Uh, since then, I think you know Colorado. The thing at least right now, that most people are uh, discussing Colorado in relation to concerns realignment, which I think was something that you were talking about on Twitter that I think led to people saying, Dan, go on the full cast, Dan, go on the full cast. Um, how are you feeling as, a, uh, as an alumni and a fan of a school that's sort of caught up in the middle of all this and has been for you know, decades now? What what is what is your uh, your feeling on the national landscape? Well, I mean, I you know I, I feel like anything that I could say is obvious, and we're all talking about it already. I mean, uh, uh, 
you know, and you don't want to come off like some person who's resistant to change and all that kind of thing. At the same time, certain sports lend themselves to the idea of tradition. And, you know, tradition is not it, if it's not the opposite of change, it's definitely still somewhere on the opposite side of the ledger. And I feel like and I think, you know, I'm echoing what a lot of college football fans say. If you get rid of the tradition in order to create a better climate for high profile games or that kind of stuff, I think you're tampering with what makes college football a sport that stands apart from, say, pro football. Because if you eliminate the things that make them different, well, then you just have an inferior version of pro football, don't you? With worse <laughs> players, less time spent on plays. I mean, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that that wouldn't be uh, enjoyable because I go to minor league baseball games, but uh, it's a very different animal. And I think you're, I think baseball is a wonderful um, example of what can happen to a sport, because if you're a baseball player professionally, it's never been better to be a baseball player. If you are baseball itself, and, you know, when I was a kid, it was the number one sport. The entire country stopped during the World Series and even during the playoffs. And that's seven games sometimes. You can't imagine that. Um, to see what's happened to the sport, it's destroyed the sport in that sort of sense. So you can make the case that the sport's better for owners, players, and TV networks than it's ever been. But from a baseball fan standpoint, you don't have that kind of white-hot intensity across the country like you used to. And many of the changes that led to where we are today is what led to the drop-off, I think, in fan enthusiasm, general yeah, fan enthusiasm. Well, minor league baseball almost doesn't even work as an analog for college football there because what makes minor league baseball great and what makes college football great is the regional specificity, which is what we're losing, again, with these, you know, with these games that get moved. Uh, one of our biggest gripes is moving these big high profile games off of campus and into these soulless NFL stadiums where, you know, you're not getting a tiger in a cage wheeled around the perimeter of the field. You're not having tortillas being thrown in the stands. And, and that's like that to me. And I know to a, a lot of our audiences where, <laughs> where you really feel the losses in these, like it's almost the higher profile you get, the more all the interesting curves get machined out of it. Well, and, and not just that. I mean, look, I think maybe it's tough to talk to the next generation of college football fans and use tradition as something as 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 you know, that you should worry about losing those kinds of things if they're not already deeply invested in your soul. You know, um, part of the things that makes college football great to me are the rivalries and not the contrived rivalries that the TV networks. I mean, look, Georgia, Florida is a, a national game any way you look at it. But I mean, the, the kind of rivalries between like, oh, I don't know, you know, Missouri and Kansas. I mean, rivalries that, that really matter locally, but that the TV networks aren't that interested in because California doesn't care. Right. So, I mean, I think those are the things you lose when you don't realize how much someone in Colorado hates the University of Nebraska football. Team. I mean, it's it's, you know, I mean, sure, Michigan and Ohio State hate each other and that's famous, but lots of little schools or not big powerhouses hate their rivals too. And that doesn't translate necessarily into the national game of the week, but I can guarantee you that in these communities, they matter more than the national game of the week in many cases. Yeah, this is uh, like one thing I think uh, that, that college football always needs, Dan, is, is you need a uh, an agricultural conference. This to me is why on the list of great conferences of all time, Colorado's old chums in the Big Eight 
were like, that was the coolest conference because pretty much everybody in that conference could be tied to a major agricultural export, right? Like everybody in that conference, it was like, that's the cow university. That's the soybean university, right? And it was always like, I loved that particular brand of Colorado football. One, because Colorado was the only team that was not scared of Nebraska. Up until K-State and Bill Snyder started bowing up to him, Colorado was the only school that consistently punched them in the mouth and went in with zero fear. And two, every single Colorado-Nebraska game looked like it was being played in Stalingrad. It was gray. <laughs> it was miserable. It was usually on turf that I knew, like, if you, if you, it was, like, as hard as this table with concrete underneath it. Stalingrad during. Not yeah, Stalingrad okay. during. Okay. Yeah, okay. during. Not, yeah, not, not pre yeah. or not post. But, like, I, I love that mystique, and I feel like that, to me, gets lost in the translation to national television property. Well, let me correct you, because Colorado Ooh. was not the big Nebraska killer. It was Oklahoma. Um, Colorado was, I mean, I remember, I don't remember, but I mean, I look at the at the standings. So in 1971, to, to back up your big eight statements, and this is typical of a history not to be going back, you know, into the stats like this. In 1971, the number one, number two, and number three team in the country were all from the Big Eight. Mm -hmm. um, and the only, so Colorado was, I believe, number three in the nation, but had two losses, one to Oklahoma and one to Nebraska. I mean, that's sort of the, the Big Eight's heyday, 1971. But I love the schools that I also love. I mean, the, the old Southwest Conference. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, that, that's basically Texas plus Arkansas, right? Um, and, and, and to me, so the regionalism, I mean, I'm trying to think when we start dating the beginnings of the loss of the regionalism. Do we do we describe it as the as the disintegration of the old Southwest Conference? Uh, in which case, you can blame as I have a friend who will blame Texas for all of this. Everything we're no, going that's, through. That's correct. Yeah. No, it's totally, all Texas. Totally correct. Right. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely yes. Uh, right. <laughs> in other words, we would still have everything, including the old Southwest Conference, if not for Texas. Um, I agree with you in the in the sense. Of, so, for example, uh, you know, you had talked about the agricultural conference or all this. But within those conferences, there were there were individual um, uh, um, uh, self images, for lack of a better word. Right. So take Colorado. Colorado was the hippie liberal school in the in the agricultural conference. Right. So when you have mm -hmm. Iowa State, Kansas State, Missouri, Nebraska and then Colorado, Colorado is their version of the West Coast. Right. They came to our school and we're all in tie dye and dreadlocks <laughs> and all that. So but then when Colorado moves to the Pac-12, well, then we're like, I mean, we're the conservative school almost <laughs> compared. I mean, Washington State, obviously, in Oregon. But I mean, we lose that identity as well. So, I mean, I feel like these things take decades to build up. And then when you rip the, the foundation out from under them, the schools become somewhat rootless and you lose I mean, if we're not playing Nebraska every year, I just can't get up for Utah the same way. I like Utah. I don't even know. I like most of the schools in the Pac-12. I had some real hatreds in, in the Big 12 and the and the Big 8, but I think that's something that, you know, it takes years of, of losses and ripoffs and, and last-minute, you know, ref decisions to, 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 to build up that foundation that makes you so passionate about college football. Dan, you mentioned dreadlocks. Did you take... <laughs> I had I, I had I had very long hair. It was always yes, I never had right. dreadlocks, but I had well, very long hair. What was your hair. game day outfit? Did you have a Did you have a look? 
Oh, it was the same look I wore every day. There was, there was no dressing up back in those days. It was the same look. Probably black jeans, some sort of a leather jacket. I didn't look very tie-dye-ish, even, but, but there was long hair for sure. Right. Sorry, Jason. Please continue. <laughs> no, that's uh, Dan Carlin had long hair. That was that was very valuable information. Oh, yeah. To discover. Had hair. How about that? Back in the day, right? <laughs> hey, while you got it, let it rock. I um I think in terms of yeah. like dating when the regionalism started to fall away like I I mean you could throw around a lot of theories like the 80s when the nationalized TV de- deals kicked in but you could also hey we could we could we could pander a little bit we could blame it all on Nebraska when the Big 10 you know the Big 10 adding Penn State sure that makes sense those borders touch the Big 10 going all the way to Nebraska like okay Nebraska has some things in common with Iowa and so forth but at that point, that stretched the map so far, and it broke into arguably an entirely different region. Um, I think we could blame it all in Nebraska. I'd, I'd be fine with that. I, Dan, I, I guess you would I'm be. I'm good with it. As much as I'd love to blame Nebraska, I think it's Texas. <laughs> I think it's te- – and, and here's the thing. Texas Texas is – you know, there are certain schools that are tough to be in a conference with because they – they have an overarching dominance, and I don't mean on the field as much as I mean administratively, uh, booster-wise, and all those kinds of things. And I think a lot of conferences have that that big juggernaut in it. Uh, in that whole region, though, that we played in at Colorado, Texas was that school. And when Texas wasn't happy, problems happened, conferences dissolved, um, and those kinds of things. So I think, you know, I, I'd love to blame Nebraska, but I think that's that's a Texas thing with the Longhorn Network and and a bunch of other deals. I mean, one of the things they're talking about in the Pac-12 now is something like unequal revenue sharing between schools. And that's the kind of thing that that, you know, I'm sure a bunch of Texas fans are going to be angry. But that's the kind of thing that a sort of a Texas school in our conference would have been making noise about in a way that disrupted this sense of permanence and satisfaction. Like, we're fine. Nothing's going to you know undermine our our conference. And then somebody starts talking about things like unequal, unequal revenue sharing, moving the conference offices to Dallas, whatever it might be. And and some schools you know, Nebraska is a, a proud football program. Uh, uh, they, they they can walk away from deals like that if they're not happy. And I and I think you could make the case that from a financial standpoint, Nebraska made the right move. I think from a traditional standpoint, though, and Nebraska being what it was. And look, I can go into the weeds about how Nebraska had a, a program set up with an offense that was very specific, where they could recruit people from all over the country who played in an offense like that and get them to go to Lincoln. Uh, but I won't and just say that I don't think it was Nebraska's fault. Okay. That's very kind of you. Peacemaking. I mean, they beat my team 62-24 in front of my own horrified eyes. Oh, you Nebraska guy? No, I'm Florida. I don't want to talk about Nebraska. I'm, I'm Florida. Games. Oh, so, so we're did you have about... a bet? Did you have a bet on Nebraska? Oh, no. No, no, no. I sat there and I watched that machine that you were talking about absolutely chew up the Florida Gators. And, oh, uh, got you. Okay, okay. I thought we were talking yeah. about the 2001 victory that we had over Nebraska. Okay. No, but okay. if you want to if you want to talk about, by the way, drop-ins, you know, because, like, if you're – I'm primarily an SEC fan, but sometimes you just manage to drop into a great moment in history – and, and that to me felt like like to use a historical comparison that's the fall of the berlin wall for me football wise is when you flip over and you go oh my god what happened to nebraska <laughs> now is this the are you talking about the florida game now or the colorado game oh, i'm talking about the colorado nebraska okay so let game. me set the historical yeah. stage for everybody yeah, let's go right? yes. let's go yeah, histor- yeah. so the historical stage is you develop a hatred of a school like nebraska uh, frankly by losing to them <laughs> 
a lot, mm-hmm. right? And not just losing them, to them a lot, but like heartbreak losses, right? Things like when I got to the Nebraska guys are going to love me at the end of this. I apologize. <laughs> but when I got to the school, they had somebody had Xerox. This is how long ago it was. Hundreds of flyers and posted them all over the school. And the flyers were a photograph from the Nebraska game the year before. And it showed two monstrous Nebraska players who both went to the NFL, if I recall, laughing over a Colorado player at their feet whose leg is broken. And the Colorado player looks like he's about five foot five, about a bucko five. And these giants are like, and this was supposed to motivate the hate, right? Um, uh, And it did. I mean, but every year there was something like that. Um, So in 2001, we're not supposed to be very good. And Nebraska comes in number one in the nation. And we've had the whole 90s, even when we were riding high, Nebraska had a way to derail our seasons. And and if you recall the game, go look at it on YouTube if you don't. Uh, the, I think it was ABC and they're, they're, it's all Nebraska, right? The, the pregame show, the hype, nothing's about. And then Colorado destroys them in that game. That is the greatest college football, by the way, moment of my life, even better than the national championship, the 2001 Nebraska game. And when you watch it, not only did we beat number one Nebraska, uh, but they've never been the same. And the only thing that makes me feel bad about that is we've never been the same either. It's like one of those <laughs> King Arthur moments where King Arthur kills Mordred, but Mordred fatally wounds Arthur, and, the, and neither team's been the same. But to me, that's part of the... It's Gandalf and the Balrog, right? I mean, we... <laughs> <laughs> that's, this is where... This is... This, yeah, I was I don't, say, this if, is you know, where we ask say, the If question, we had to go out, it? that's how I want to go out. Yeah. Okay. There we go. There we go. <laughs> It, it, it was worth it just to take down Big Husk. Did, did, did you know uh, N- Nebraska hasn't finished a season ranked in the top 20 since 2010, but Colorado has? So arguably Colorado is a superior program at the moment. Well, we've beaten them the last two times we played. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say that until we have another game. So, <laughs> is it um, like seeing Nebraska, you know, in the Big Ten where they are uh, far from a bully, and seeing Texas go to the SEC where they will not really have any particular weight to throw around like they have is that satisfying at all like seeing them sort of go from high atop the pecking order to they're no longer going to be you know top dog well this is going to get into the weeds here but in a college football podcast your audience can certainly handle it so Mm -hmm. so this is my theories on all this because i've and and i think the nebraska fans i have a feeling that we're going to be absolutely in sync on that but the way Nebraska was able to pull off what they did, and I, I was starting to, to allude to this earlier, was they had a real connection between a kind of an offense that most people didn't run very much anymore and players around the country who were very gifted in that kind of an offense, right? So they could go, let's, let's, Nebraska's offense was more complicated than just calling it the option, but let's play with the option for a minute here. So if you're in Nebraska, and you're considered to be one of, let's say, top three major option programs in the country, and you have a great athlete in Florida or California or Ohio who runs that offense as a quarterback or a running back or a lineman, right? Although Nebraska could recruit homegrown linemen fantastically. But but you were going to look at the University of Nebraska as a place to go because it was perfectly suited to your skill set, right? Um, and so all of a sudden, Nebraska is grabbing people from Florida. Well, you get someone like Bill Callahan into Nebraska as a coach, comes in with a pro, and I know they love that name in Lincoln, uh, comes in with a pro idea, we're going to upgrade this offense, we're going to modernize it and all these things. 
The problem is, though, when you take Nebraska's offense and you try to make it West Coasty, for example, well, all of a sudden now you're competing for these West Coast quarterbacks with a thousand other really top schools because they play that kind of game. All of a sudden you don't have your direct line to the top three option quarterbacks in America anymore. You're in Lincoln trying to recruit people that could be going to school in, you know, Florida or Los Angeles or a bunch of other places. I think they broke the machine. Nebraska had a machine. And you know how recruiting is. I mean, once you sort of lose your step, it takes a lot to get back to where you were. And I don't think they've ever recovered from the Callahan era. And if I was Nebraska, here's the funny thing. This is how you know I'm an old Big 8 guy. Not only would I tell Nebraska to go back to their old offense, I'd have Colorado go back to the, I'd have the eye bone going again. And you say, we got to have a gimmick. We got to have a thing that works for us. We got to be tough to prepare for. We got to be able to go after players that 10,000 other schools aren't competing against. I mean, you know, if you're if you're Notre Dame, you don't have to be that way. But I think other schools had an image and an approach and a machine. And Nebraska's machine, and this is coming from an enemy, was as impressive as anything that 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 I mean. And, and the, the big question for a guy like me is, can something like that work again? Because a lot of the people would say you can't work in the modern era. Well, let's see. Let's put some top flight athletes in that offense and see how they can do. Nebraska should run the option is like that's probably been one of our favorite takes for the last decade or so. So delighted yeah. to hear yeah. you're, you're on board. Well, go to Lincoln during a home game. And I'm sorry if I'm yelling. I get excited about these things. But I mean, go, go, go to Lincoln in December and try to run a wide open passing speed offense. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That's a home field advantage, isn't it? You said this might be a hard sell to younger generations of fans, but there is a there is a wide streak of reject modernity going through uh, going through at least our audience. Yeah. Additionally, Dan, you should know this. A lot of people who came up on college football grew up playing a video game where they figured out the most annoying thing you could do to your opponent was run the option mm -hmm. because it will make them cry and quit. So it was a glitch you, in the game? No, accurately no. rendered. The option the has always been difficult to present. In the EA Sports games, some some years it's like this, you know, because like you can, a, a running play, they can set it up so this should work 50% of the time. You know, a, a passing play, they can set it up, they could balance it realistically, but the option is just very, very difficult to balance. And it's, yeah. you know, from year to year, it's really, uh, it, it just takes a few weeks for players to figure out like, oh, this, this is unstoppable. So like, yeah. so, so let my West Virginia head take over. You get Pat White and Steve Slayton. Mm -hmm. You start running that. You start running that early Rich Rod West Virginia offense, and no one can touch you. Yeah, and those are variation of the old power options and stuff. But but look, I mean, Stanford was making power football work not that long ago. There are teams that still make power football work. Uh, you know, I would argue it's a little like warfare. Uh, in the sense that there's offense is always evolving, then defense is always evolving, and there's this ebb and flow between the two. And then sometimes when you when you've moved completely into the opposite direction, going back to maybe a more power game, you know, it's like you guys know this. Um, if you're going to recruit, I remember when we moved to the Pac-12, and all of a sudden Colorado had to recruit different kinds of linebackers. Right. Because you're facing different kinds of offenses, mm -hmm. more speed, more spreads. Uh, whereas uh, uh, if if all of a sudden you ran into that Stanford team that Jim Harbaugh was running uh, and, and, and the strength and conditioning coach is awesome. He's at Colorado now. I'm hoping for for miracles. Um, but but you could see that all of a sudden these schools with these 210, 215 pound 
speedy linebackers were getting chewed up by fullbacks. So in my opinion, when you go too far in one direction, it creates opportunities to to move in the other. And after a while, having a fullback becomes as hard to prepare for as as, as playing Georgia Tech or Air Force, and their option game becomes as hard to prepare for. So I can safely say Dan Carlin is on team fullback, right? Team fullback. Yeah, I want a fullback and it, and it one, maybe two tight ends. Wow. <laughs> That's burly. Yeah, can I talk you into an H back? Cuz I think this is the thing that the thing that fascinates me is that a lot of the time we're just remixing this. Mike Leach is fond of saying that they they just run the triple, they just run it a different way. You know, they just run it with the handoff happens to be 10 yards, so the handoff happens to be 8 yards downfield. Um, he really doesn't view it as being any different right down to the distribution. And what I wonder is for a team like Colorado is once recruiting is done, that's a big given, right? That you can compete in recruiting because Colorado historically, um, there's an issue. It's just not that many people. Um, but once you get that done strategically, um, do you want to be that innovator that takes the chance on that um, that might not work out? Or do you want to do something more conservative given, you know, okay, well, we've got decent talent. Maybe if we play it tight to the vest, you know, it, it, which one would you rather be? Like as a fan, would you rather jump feet first into the deep end and say, okay, let's try something new? Or would you rather uh, just say, okay, maybe we try to win 1917? I think it depends on where you are when you make that decision. So if you let's if you go back to Nebraska again and it's 1999 and your offense is kicking butt and, and uh, then you don't mess with it right you don't tinker with what's working if you haven't had success in 20 years which is the Colorado formula right now well then in my opinion if you're not taking chances you're not trying I mean you know you, you what do you have to lose right <laughs> go in there try a four year experiment and because that's how. That's how the team that eventually won the national championship when right after I left. That's how they did it. They they came in and said because they were running. I don't know if you call it pro style, but they were throwing the ball. And then Bill McCartney came in and said, we got to build an identity and we've got to have equalizers. And then so every year it was it was building off of something that was trying to create an advantage. Right. Leverage and edge, things like that. And I think you do that when you need to. And so I would argue that for a team like Colorado now, Okay, we're not we're we're predicted to to finish last in the Pac-12. So what the heck do you have to lose? I wouldn't play the game the way that everyone's expecting you to now because that's the same game they're playing and beating us with, right? And it also calls for a level of administrative patience that I'm just not sure we see anymore. Yeah, that's now you're opening up a, a different window, which is the, <laughs> which is which is you know I mean. How much like, like a pro a operation four year experiment? Who gets that anymore? Right. Yeah. Well, but see, I would argue that, that the four year experiment that we're talking about here is a conservative one. Uh, so it's easier to pull off. I mean, you don't you're, you're essentially saying we need to do this because we're not getting the top flight players and we need to do this because we aren't you know, massively outspending our opponents. And th these are the things you do that maybe a school that doesn't want to become what did we used to say? A tiny school with a large football program attached to it. I think that's what schools like like that do. And to be honest, and this this dovetails back into how we started. This is one of the things I love about college football that's different than the pros. I mean, the pros have a limited number of teams. They all run, you know, slight variations on what they do. College has a, more than a hundred teams in Division One, right? I mean, there's a lot of different offenses. There's a lot of different experiments. That's how, how sometimes. I mean, the funny thing is that the pro offenses used to 
migrate to college. But now, because there's so much tinkering and experimentation, the college football offenses are tested at the college level, and then the pros experiment with them. So, I mean, in my, in my mind, this is part of what you have with college football is the ability to say, screw that, we can't compete with this, let's try the triple option for a while, right, and see what happens. That's the spirit. That's it's diversity. <laughs> that Yeah, that is one of the things that people love about college football, or, or at least it was this way, I think, through most of the 2010s where, like, every NFL team ran the same offense, whereas every, you know, college football, there you could see a total variety. And now, in some ways, that has almost flipped, like, you see, you know, Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes and uh, Josh Allen, you know, there's so many different kinds of quarterbacking in the NFL now, whereas college, you know, you've, we've seen the triple option all but either go away as a uh, mainstay offense or just be absorbed into sort of just this generic thing a lot of teams do. So I definitely think there is a case for just being the team that just goes back and tries the pure thing. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, I'm up for it. I, I, I would definitely like to just see how that plays out. Look, here's the thing. McCartney's era buffs got to an opinion that at a certain point you couldn't get over the hump without offense. So the offense's job was to take you from one win in a season and get you up to five. And then you can recruit some better players. You can tweak that offense, and now you're up to seven wins. But McCartney opened it up in the middle 1990s because to get to the national champion level when you're playing a lot of teams that, you know, Florida, for example, throwing the ball a lot in that era, he felt like, okay, those extra one or two wins at the end of the season, that's where you really need to have an offense that can do more than what was limiting us in a triple option or an eye bone or any of those kind of things. But it was the triple option and the eye bone that got you from one to four or one to five or one to six wins that allowed your recruiting to step up. So it was all part of a plan, right? Building up to a better program. Uh, when you're predicted to come last in the Pac-12 and maybe win one or two or three games, to me, that's exactly why you why you take a route like that. It's about building yourself back up to a, a level of competency where you can start to dream bigger, you know, open up the offense, get better players, better assistant coaches, keep players, which I think is going to be the biggest thing in the, the era of, tra you know, transfer portals that let you transfer all the time or NILs. I mean, in a Colorado situation, if we coach up a good player or a player that wasn't supposed to be good and we coach them up to a good player, they leave for a better program. So, I mean, the, the incentive in order to build a program from scratch or build one back up to rebuild a program is really undercut by this idea that if you start getting players who are better, you become a farm system for the, the higher profile schools at this point. They got to fix the transfer portal somehow. I have a question that you feel free to invoice us for uh, a Davos or TED Talk fee uh, <laughs> after I ask this for you. But um, I don't think they your... pay TED Talk fees. I'm just saying. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, put on your little wireless headset for this question because I wanted to ask. We now have two big new federations, okay? And if you just sort of black box it and say this isn't college football, you have two very large new leagues that might not necessarily have a lot in common with someone with a history brain who has done as much work looking at history as you have. When you have these very large organizations that are can't fail type organizations, how does that go wrong? Because I know there's a lot of people who can see how this is going to go right. There's more money, there's more teams, there's more eyeballs involved, but how do these very large groups that might not necessarily have a whole lot in common, how can they go wrong in terms of uh, function and in terms of looking down the road? 
they kill the golden goose, right? So it becomes so so it part of the problem here is is what is incentivized. So if the TV networks control this, and apparently they do, um, then then what is their incentive here? If I said to them, if you're not careful, you're going to do to baseball what happened to baseball, they're going to say, what happened to baseball, right? It's, the owners make more money. The networks make more money. Baseball is great. I said, yeah, but, but no one's, well, it's a very small group. We all used to be fanatical about baseball. I can't explain to people what like the 1975 World Series was like. The country stopped. It stopped. Okay, that hasn't it that doesn't happen anymore. So I think the problem would be that college football fans have a different definition of success in terms of whether college football is healthy or not than the TV networks do or maybe even the big leagues because once again, if you're an Ohio State fan, I think there's things that you're going to hate about these changes. But there's things you're going to love about it too. But if you're an Iowa State fan, there's things you're going to hate about these changes, and there's almost nothing you're going to love about this. So that's the difference is that when you talk about these super conferences, there's like my brothers both went to USC. And I remember telling them about the SC leaving and they hadn't even heard about it you know, the day it happened. So I called them the next day and say, OK, now that you've had some time to let it sink in, what do you think? And I would argue that in typical USC fashion, they said, well, you know, what are you going to do? They forced our hand. We have to go. It's relevancy or not relevancy, (laughs) which I get. But they're not happy about losing the rivalries. They don't want. So they have the same feelings we all do. But it's easier for them to go, well, you know, progress or adapt or die. But for everyone else, I mean, if you're a Washington State fan, okay, well, what what does this have for you? Right. Um, And so I, I guess. What's sad is that we've been able to break the schools up individually and say, well, what's good for your school and what's bad for your school, as opposed to them all being able to stick together and say, well, what's good for all of us and the health of the sport long term? But remember, the guys who are making the decisions at the TV networks get promoted or fired based on what happens in the next three years, four years, five years. They have no incentive at all to care about the the down the road thing. And if you wanted to make so so like I was wondering about and this is totally stupid and I'm sure I'm missing major aspects of it. But like on the NIL thing, I totally think the players should get paid for name, image, likeness. But who said they had to be paid individually? on an individual level. I mean, couldn't you just throw all the money into a pool and say division one players split this equally, everybody gets money, as opposed to saying, hey, this quarterback coming out of Florida at a high school, uh, he's gonna get NIL money and we're gonna use this as a recruiting tool and who can, and you know, you get into the highest bidder thing. I don't know whether NIL means you have to let players get into an auction for their talents, or if it's more fair to say, hey, that poor offensive lineman playing left tackle at Iowa uh, is not going to get his own NIL deal. But in a in a in a in a whole pooling of the resources, that guy could get, you know, a, a good NIL deal, just the, as good as the guy next to him. And it doesn't become something where Iowa's recruiting using NIL against, you know, Oregon State. I mean, so I, I don't know that maybe but with no again, with no NCAA or no one to to coordinate all this, it becomes a survival of the fittest, you know, no holds barred kind of deal. Uh, I was going to I was going to step in, Dan, and say the linemen at Iowa, they get a nice deal because I'm pretty sure they're compensated for the hay bale toss at the Iowa State Fair that they do every year. Go look at it. Honestly, they win it every year. There's some gigantic Iowa lineman with a name that's like 27 letters long. All right. Some Dutch 
farm board. Line in yeah. Kugelstat, and they end up and they end up winning like a hundred bucks off of the hay bale toss, which inevitably is like a right guard. Some right guard throws a hay bale like twenty feet in the air because he's been doing that his whole life. I think they're played in tractors, just like blue chips. Paid in tractors? There okay, go. there we go. I got no problem with that. You, the, in, in the old days at Oklahoma, they used to have all these kids on construction jobs in the off-season <laughs> driving like Maseratis mm. and and never showing up to work. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff has always gone on when, it, when we talk about free-for-alls, but one way or another, somehow it worked, right? So I used to argue about corruption in government and, and talk about how every government has some level of corruption. But it's when you reach a tipping point that it becomes a problem. And I think you could argue that at a certain point, rather than slap an SMU with the death penalty or something, it just came, maybe became easier to just throw the doors open and say, OK, if you're not cheating, you're not trying and we'll put make it. above. it's like gambling. We're going to make it above board now. And here's the new world. And and good luck out there. Yeah. I just love that the NCAA had literally more than a century to prepare for this. And their best idea was, oh, whatever. That, that's the solution they come up with. <laughs> there's there's going to be some good books written because it is almost, if you zoom out and look at this, it is a historic dropping of the ball. It is, it is nothing has taken over in, in a real sense. And so, you know, I did an interview and I've told this story before, so I apologize. I did an interview years ago with Charlie Steiner, who was at, at ESPN at the time. And I was complaining about boxing and how there was no overarching authority to make sure that the best people fought each other or that there was only one belt per weight category and all this. And he laughed at me and said, what do you have a problem with capitalism? He said, this is the last true vestige of pure capitalism <laughs> in any sport we have. He goes, this is how it runs when it runs exactly like the people in, in the in the sport want it to run. And I feel like that's what's happened here is that the whatever the fig leaf of of accountability that the NCAA was providing has disappeared. It's created a vacuum. And now these schools are quite correctly trying to look out for their own interests. But it means that nobody's looking out for everyone's interest collectively. And that's what I mean about, you know, now, I mean, if Colorado takes a two star recruit and strength trains him and, and technique trains him to a point where he's a four star recruit, he's going somewhere else. In other words, why would you even try? So that's that's where you kill the golden goose, I think. What if this is, I guess, my other my other question in that vein in terms of killing the golden goose how long do you think something this big can hold because i don't like just personally i look down the road and i don't see this arrangement lasting i don't oh no this so so the foundation's unstable and the instability so one of two things is going to happen at least from my vantage point here either some overarching authority that has some power and control probably something put together uh, collectively via the athletic directors in this in the, what's going to be the two top conferences uh, or or it stays this free for all um, without some sort of foundation in place uh, that, that stabilizes all this. We're going to have realignment every couple of years. We're going to have changes to the championship formula every couple of years. We're going to have people come. So, so here's the here's the problem maybe that no one's ever thought about. But if, if you don't even have the fig leaf of the NCAA, what do you do when somebody else is breaking the rules? And w what are the rules? Right. So if you say, well, this is not like I, I remember, was it Nick Saban saying something like, well, this isn't what NIL was supposed to be. Well, who says what it's supposed to be and who enforces what it's supposed to be and who enacts penalties if you violate how it's supposed to be? I mean, so I, I, what I would argue is, is, is exactly what you've argued, that without some sort of foundation, 
the underpinnings of this sport are unstable. And if they're unstable, well, then how does anything ever solidify so we can get back to games where you have rivalries and care, predictability, rules that apply to, to the big schools and the small? I mean, without any of that, I think you, you're too fluid to exist in, in, a, in a stasis ever. So things are going to be continually changing because there's no one enforcing any sort of rules, any sort of framework. So the NCAA's decades of focusing on like preserving amateurism as the end-all be-all as opposed to preserving the sport, right? Like their, their, their focus was on let's find a way to keep this not paying the players system legal when they could have spent that entire time establishing like a framework of rules and functions and agreements and treaties and contracts. Like, it's their favorite thing. They could have been in yeah. a committee meeting this entire they time. They could have had a century-long committee meeting that resolved all this, but they chose to spend the entire time defending amateurism and accomplishing nothing else. It's pretty great. I think the other problem was it was a the rules seemed uh, enforced in a sort of unfair and precarious. And, and I mean, sometimes schools would violate things and you go, this is really terrible. And they get nothing or a slap on the wrist. Other times schools would do these tiny little things and get huge penalties. I mean, I think the NCAA helped work itself out of existence. Uh, and then I think a lot of schools who just would rather not have any breaks at all, you know, any of the schools from the old Southwest Conference come to mind, uh, where their, their attitude is, well, why can't we just spend a ton of money, have a lot of boosters, and, and you just don't like it because you can't compete. I mean, I, I remember hearing that sometimes when you go to these Texas places and they'd be like, hey, if we were allowed to compete the way we want to compete, y'all never stand a chance. I mean, I, I heard that. <laughs> and that's the old, if you're not cheating, you're not trying thing. What was that? The old ball coach said that? Was that, was that Spurrier? No, I think if you're not cheating, you're not that trying. Harry? That's that's like mm. the entire Southwest Conference. It's I know, the but there was a. It, but wasn't that the state? I think Spurrier actually said that as a joke, didn't he? Uh, I will. I will check. That doesn't sound like Spurrier, but I will. Uh, this is. I know it was an Eddie Guerrero quote. This is the. But, this is the Florida fan looking this up, right? Do we trust him? Yeah. No, don't no, trust. No, do, I will tell you straight up. Him. Unreliable narrator here. But <laughs> it, it looks like it's been, it's been attributed to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is funny. Uh, Eddie Guerrero is the one that most often comes up. That's you know what? That's that's cool. Eddie's like R.I.P. Eddie. You, you deserve the credit for if you're not cheating, you're not trying. I wanted to. I also wanted to ask if you're looking if you're looking at this from from where it might go. Like eventually, I do think I think that there is a future for this. Where, because if you don't know, uh, do you know who Greg Sankey is, the commissioner of the SEC? Oh, uh, yeah, I do. Well, I don't know who he is. Like, I've, I've met the, the commissioner of the Pac 12, but I, I've never met Sankey or anything. Yeah, but I know who he is. Okay, so Sankey's model was reading a book on it, has followed the, the roadmap pretty closely, is the EPL, is the, is, is the English Premier League that, that they really want to have like a 20 or 30 team mega league. And everyone else is going to tear down from that. And I wondered what you thought about that as a model for the sport. Because like, I'm pretty optimistic about that model if that's how it settles out. Because the second tier and third tier teams in England, they're fairly sorted to me. Like they, we, don't, we wouldn't have, like right now college football is a highway with no lanes. And you have Alabama which is a big lifted truck going 140 miles an hour straight down the road. And occasionally they run into something that's their size, but a lot of the time they're just running over much smaller vehicles, right? Like Charleston Southern is a bike that they get to run over in one game a year and they pay them for the privilege. But something like the EPL, you have 
teams that can move up and down, there's relegation. You know, does that seem like something that that the sport could probably live with if we can even talk about the sport? I don't know. And, and mm-hmm. I think anybody who says they know are crazy. Uh, but I, I do think that there's going to become a sort of a separation. And I think I'm the 10,000th person to say this. So let me not let me not act as though I've, I've come up with any great revelations. But there are schools, I don't want to say that they take the idea of the student athlete more seriously, but they take the idea of the academic institution in a way that won't let them go past a certain point. I mean, there's a lot of people in academia that are, and I'm not sure sure they're wrong, upset with the fact that the football coach at a lot of these universities is the top paid state employee. Uh, with millions and millions of dollars due to them after they're gone as part of the state public employees pension plans. Right. So, I mean, I think Mike Bellotti here in the state of Oregon is uh, is that I could be wrong, but I think if he's not the top, he's one of the top recipients of the public employees retirement system. Right. So there's a lot of people in academia that go, look, this is just out of hand. We're an academic institution that plays football, not a football institution that has you know, some academics as, as, a, as a fig leaf. And some schools are going to have more problems with that than others. Uh, I think you can see this in the two L.A. schools that are that are moving to the Big 12. Those are two very different schools from each other. USC is a private institution. UCLA is a proud public institution that is part of of a, of, a, of a group of institutions, the University of California system that is run by the regents of the University of California system, USC doesn't have to worry about that at all. And if you said you're going to have to change a lot of things in the academic side in order to continue to compete in football, I imagine SC is going to go, well, we're going to go to our boosters and we're going to tell them what it takes and we're going to make it work. Whereas UCLA is going to go, oh God, how much money are we talking about? Well, we're going to have to go to the the governor and we're going to have to add and and fan supports a problem. And I mean, I guess what I'm saying is there's a couple of when you take more than 100 institutions across the country and essentially say you're all in the same pool playing college football, that's a lot of different kind of institutions. I mean, even the service academies are included in that, right? Religious schools are included in that. They're all going to have a whole different group of priorities that matter to them individually that aren't winning football championships. But we all know that there are schools, Alabama's one of them, certainly. Ohio State's one of them. University of Oregon's probably one of them. Texas is one of them. Oklahoma's one of them. Where this is really important, LSU uh, and Michigan, where the, where people there are going to be really upset. I think in some other schools, people are going to be really upset if the schools do too much away from their academic side to continue to be players at the football side. So Colorado is a perfect example. I have no insider information, but if they went too far down the road in trying to compete and trying to play with the big boys, there'll be a pushback from the academic side in a way that would not carry the same kind of weight at a school where football is really, really, really important. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, yeah, this is the ACC example where you have a conference that somehow has Boston College and Florida State. <laughs> Clemson, which has has a good reputation also, but football's hugely important, right? Mm-hmm. Boston College. I mean, there's a whole different example, right? Yeah. Not a lot of Jesuits in Tallahassee. Not a lot of Jesuits who are going to stand up to the football program, at least successfully. Yeah, but you guys see the point. I mean, and then there's yeah. like a Notre Dame, which is its own animal completely, right? Uh, 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 one of the fine academic institutions across the country. Well, what happens if, if it's, I don't know. Notre Dame's got its own kind of deal. My point is, is that you're going to, if you wanted to talk about football conferences or football 
what levels division one versus division two as we mm-hmm. used to say it might end up being division two are the kind that won't go past this line of support and division one of the people that will go past this line of support but here's what makes college football different and i think the networks don't get this or don't care is that if you keep intact is what you were talking about the regionalism of the sport and the rivalries Division two could be just as viable because I can tell you right now, a lot of people in my neck of the woods didn't care that much about what was going on in the SEC for exactly those regionalism questions that you you brought up. And if they were playing a different brand of football somewhere between the NFL and the rest of college football, they might watch if there's nothing on on a Sunday, but it won't affect the fact that their team's playing Nebraska this week. Right. So, I mean, I think that's what's different than the NFL. If the NFL created an NFL light um, I don't know how many people watch that compared to the, you know, the NFL full spectrum. Um, so maybe there's an avenue there that naturally works its way out. I don't know. Maybe maybe one that has a spending cap that just says we recognize that these are educational institutions. Therefore, no one is going to spend more than this. But again, without an NCAA, who enforces those rules? Who 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 puts penalties in place and those kinds of things? Listen, all I all I want is the Sun Belt with the spending cap. That's my ideal college football league. The that's Sun the Belt. one. That's the one area that won't have a spending cap. I guarantee. You. I know, I know, but that's what I want. I want these guys competing like for the pride of Jonesboro on a salary cap. That's all I want out of this sport, Dan. It's the Sun Belt striving to hit a salary cap. Right, right, striving to get to get there. Well, it just, you know, listen, maybe I'm not enough of a lawyer to understand the problems with the idea of sharing the NIL money equally. But I think something like that preserves the viability of smaller programs. In other words, I don't I'm not sure in this game of musical chairs where everyone is so afraid of being left out with the, of, of, a, of a viable conference when the music stops. I'm not sure anyone's paying enough attention to the programs that you know, don't matter in air quotes. But I have a feeling that Iowa State is going to suffer if Northwestern goes under, right? I mean, whether they know it or not. And and I feel like you need those kinds of programs for all sorts of reasons. And that's where sort of a revenue, they don't want revenue sharing, but you know what I mean, where, where you keep the sport healthier if you actually protect those programs that cannot go out in a free market system and compete effectively. I think I have a solution or an answer to that question, which is this, we cheat. Every time there's a rule in college <laughs> football, we cheat. It did, like if there's revenue sharing, that I mean, you know, that's a fine idea. We'll still cheat. If I go to Auburn and I say, "Well, you're going to share revenue," I know what Auburn's going to do to get a recruit. They're going to pay them more because that's what they've always done. That's what Florida will do. That's what Alabama will do. So I think that's probably the issue with with revenue sharing. That yeah, overall it would create a kind of incentive, but I think you would get something that looks like what we have already because no one's listening. There will always be a Southwest Conference somewhere buried in the fabric of college football, even though it doesn't exist anymore. I call it the fig leaf, right? What do you think yeah. about? Let's compare it to something like the drug war, right? Uh, where where you had laws and penalties and people went to jail and people got Mm -hmm. in all kinds of trouble, but you knew you were being able to enforce 1% of the activity that was going on, right? Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't, somebody said to me once, you know, we have laws against murder, but people still get murdered. Does that mean you want to take away murder laws? And I, I think you could make the case that back in the day, 1980s, 1970s, there were certainly teams that were cheating, and sometimes you even knew their names. Sometimes it was an open secret, but some teams got the death penalty anyway. 
right? And some teams got scholarships revoked anyway, and some teams couldn't go to bowl games or had championships vacated anyway. One can make the case that even partial enforcement is at times better than nothing, it, just for the foundation, like you said, or or to create, you know, they have a a, a, a line to create uh, something that uh, you don't you don't want the perception of impropriety, right? So even if it's going on, you know, there's some level of enforcement. I don't know. I think when you take take it something like the NCAA away and you don't replace them with anything, you're asking for instability. I think we, we might as well lean into the impropriety. Just just end the yeah. end the war on paying players entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but that's, that's where think, we're going. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the, yeah, where let's we're going. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, the, that's, that's, that's fine. That's the but then the rich issue, get richer. Right? The rich just get richer. Then that's true. It's it's true. But they're unless, going to anyway. Or unless you create a high dollar, unless you create a high dollar uh, piece of intellectual property centered around talented athletes all going to the same super conference under the aegis of a large TV contract that then funnels money, which could be put into salary caps, which would be, this is where, by the way, we we don't fix all of our issues at the same time, because I think you can get to players sharing revenue once they're classified as employees under something like a super league. And if you want that traditional college football experience, I think eventually for better or worse, you'll find that at the second tier. Right. Like, I don't think I'm not being prescriptive in any of this. I just think this is what could happen down the road where you see, say, the Big Ten and SEC both doing something like a salary cap across the board for players and being regulated on that by the peers in that group. Right. Like, I don't think like Alabama has no interest in letting Michigan pay players more than their salary cap. That's a really odd example, but I just used it. Um, (laughs) It'd probably be the other way. Yeah. But, you know, there's actually yeah. there's an avenue here and you open up the door to talking about it mm-hmm. that maybe uh, and maybe this this goes where you were saying about just sort of leaning in to this new approach. But if you if you want to make the and I know there's a lot of talk about this, if you want to make the college football athletes employees of the institution, well, then there are things that come with being an employee that didn't come with being. In other words, if you want the pluses of that situation, then you may have to live with the minuses and certain minuses. I mean, for example, you want to fix the transfer portal or at least slow it down. Well, then tell these people that when you sign a contract to come to this school, as opposed to a letter of intent or a contract, you're an employee now. Well, we're investing significant resources in your development, assuming that there's going to be a payoff down the road. If you leave this institution two years into your contract, right, a four year contract or a five year contract, and you go to a school that's offering you more money or a higher profile or a better offense or whatever it might be. Well, then wait a minute. You owe me. Because I spent two years, you know, this would help like a Colorado who's coaching up that two star into a four star who's then going to leave for Michigan. You may say to the two star, uh, you owe me reimbursement. Right. And if Michigan wants you bad enough, they pay me to let you go because I invested when you were nothing. Now they like you enough. Well, I you know, if you're in the private sector, those kind of contracts are not uncommon at all. Right. So you sign a four year with my insta- with me. I expect you there the four years. If you break the contract early, there's ramifications and the school gets compensated. So if Alabama wants to go poach players from other schools, well, maybe they have to take their unlimited money that they can get you know, for boosters and spread it around to the smaller schools who develop those players you now want to poach. The school being the one the, the destination school being the one to compensate is an argument I haven't actually heard being thrown around. And I'm here to create new arguments. <laughs> and it's, no, it's, interesting, it. it's interesting to me because in, 
And first of all, let me say, I, I accept the idea of a Super League because at least I'm more in the loss of the regionality, even since, you know, I started becoming conscious of college football in like 1992. I, I think it's an interesting argument to float because one of the one of the biggest drop-offs that you're going to have in terms of revenue in this in a separated era is when a Charleston Southern that relies upon Bama's $900,000 check uh, to go in and get beat up by Bama once a year in August. You know, how are how are they going to make up that lost revenue? Well, being compensated for these players that We've... end up that end up going up. When you see this argument out in the wild a lot, it's well the payers are gonna have to play that money back, to which we say, Okay, now do coaches. But yeah, having the having the schools compensate is is uh, a wrinkle that may actually work. Yeah, I it's essentially say. buyouts for players and then mm-hmm. Trent, this right. is Transfer fees. Correct. Transfer fees. Which we've again, just we're reinvented. Back the, we're back to the EPL. Yeah, we've just reinvented the transfer fee. Which, oh. by the way, as a as somebody who watches a fair amount of English and and you know like La Liga, I, I am thrilled by the notion of saying something like Cam Newton transferred from Florida to Auburn for a four million dollar transfer fee. Yeah. Bring it. I'm totally here for this. Yeah. Well, and it, it 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 acts as an inhibitor, right, to keep things from getting too crazy. And believe me, I mean, there are going to be schools that still have relatively unlimited budgets and something like that might oh, yeah. actually make the rich get richer. But at the same time, the rich are getting richer. At least they're paying. I mean, for some of these schools, can you imagine? Wouldn't that be a fun way to siphon off? Because I, I blame the TV networks for a lot of this. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to take ESPN and CBS's money and say, oh, I know you thought you were paying Ohio State for this, but they're going to pay Washington State and they're going to pay Texas Tech, you know, your money as a pass through because they want that quarterback that those other schools have. I mean, that we'll call that trickle down economics post NCAA. <laughs> successful trickle down economics. <laughs> it finally happened in history. We have created an alternate realm in which it actually works. I love or. the the idea of the player buyout. You sign a five star quarterback. He's not working out. Uh, he doesn't go to class. You know, we're just inventing a guy who, who's we call this also not the Michigan. Oh, okay. Yeah. And to to cut quote unquote cut we don't quote unquote cut players but of course they cut players you do that mm-hmm. you owe him three years on his contract you do it mm-hmm. exactly the same as you do coaches you want to fire a coach yeah. okay you got to pay a, pay the last three years of his deal um, seventeen new Clawson siblings that I just found out yeah about. like <laughs> like I love the idea of a place like Charleston Southern which or, or a place like like the Chanticleers right coastal like mm-hmm. coastal Carolina coastal Carolina is an innovative school that finds new ways to do things and takes flyers on one to two star players and makes them into two to four star players I love the idea of giving them a business model so that if a defensive end from Coastal who has come in and said, hey, listen, I'm betting on myself, I'm going to go to you guys, and I get a portion of that transfer fee, mm-hmm. right? Like I get a cut just like an EPL player does or can. That to me is thrilling. Like I love that notion because then you get places that are well-known little wellsprings of innovation that actually get rewarded for it instead of just getting their coaches stolen and just getting all their you know administrators stolen. You can actually create sort of a viable business model there. It also puts like a bold underline to, and this is something I started to say earlier. The reason that I you know I I, I don't like the direction that we're going. I'm grumpy. I you know I want to. I, I long for the days of the SWC, but. One thing that a Super League system would do is force us to stop pretending that Ohio University and Ohio State play the same kind of football or playing the same game. They're not. Yeah. And 
having a financial structure in place would only serve to highlight. Yeah, well, when we pretend that these two games are, that these two schools are playing the same brand of football, it actually hurts everybody. You know, it, it doesn't, nobody actually benefits there. So I, I like anything that will point a pin spot at, you know, the, the game that Charleston Southern is playing and the game that Alabama is playing is almost as marked as the difference. And I'm not saying about quality of players. I'm talking about resources. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like putting a, you know, maybe a good-sized high school budget, but there are high schools that have better budgets than Charleston Southern. I'm sorry for Charleston Southern. We're beating up on you a lot yeah, this sorry. episode. Yeah. Well, but, you know, think about something else, and this will be interesting, and I have no idea where this is going to go. And I think for the fans, it'll be different than for the coaches. Because uh, one of the noises that these new big super conferences are making is eliminating those kind of games, right? Uh, the, the cupcake games, as used to, as they used to call them, right? The, mm-hmm. the playing, uh, uh, you know, the Sisters of the Poor, right? But there's a reason that those games are scheduled. Yeah. And I remember, I don't know if it was Nick Saban, but somebody talking about how the conference schedule that they play is already so terribly tough that the injuries that they would get if they scheduled people instead of those cupcakes, the fact that they'd have to leave starters in longer, all these kinds of things. Well, I mean, if you really want to play in this high profile level, guess what? You're going to probably have to pay schools that every week ESPN or CBS wants to show to an audience that's interested as opposed to. Uh, we'll show the Nebraska against the Charleston game because, uh, you know, uh, it's on. Right, and The people in Lincoln want to see it. But you, you make that game illegal now. You're right. The small schools lose out on the payday. And the big schools, all of a sudden, instead of having eight tough games on their schedule, have 11 tough games on their schedule. And over the course of a season, how does that play out with injuries, fatigue, uh, uh, attrition, uh, we'll see. But but there's a reason they play those games and there's a reason that they're happy to pay those teams yeah. to come and play those games. I would think that that reason is still going to be there, even if you say that that can't happen anymore. This is where I'm wondering if and, you know, as the season encroaches longer and longer, I wonder how close uh, this is one NFL edition that I wouldn't mind how close we're getting to adding another bye week. Well, here's the funny thing about that, and this is an old-time Big 8 way to look at it, but you end up, a, if you end another, there's two ways of looking at it. One is at the beginning of the year, and one is at the end of the year. You you add another bye week at the beginning, and then you're talking about playing games in the heat of summer even more. If you add one at the back end, then you're talking about playing in Lansing, East Lansing, Big in late December or something. And, and I think that actually favors certain kinds of schools and certain kinds of offenses over other ones, right? I mean, the great equalizer for those Florida schools back in the 1980s used to be go up to Big Ten country in December and see how that, you know, wide open fun and gun offense works in the snow against people who are built for that kind of weather. That's another part of the college football thing that I always liked was building to your environment. And, you know, your Nebraska might be a different animal when it comes down to the bowl game in sunny Florida, but go play them in Lincoln on December 5th, right? Or November 27th and see what that's like, right? That, you know, that some horses in horse racing are mudders, right? So the, the big eight, a lot of those schools were snow weather teams, the big 10 snow weather teams. You, you bring a Southern California team in there in late November and it's a different ball game, right? And I love that. I, to me, that's part of the joy of the sport also. And again, you can build a team for that. You know, you build teams for your conference opponents. You build teams for the weather. You build team for the environment. I mean, when I was a kid, they used to talk all the time about the Minnesota Vikings and the pros. And they played in an outdoor stadium in the winter in Minnesota. And they would come out without 
you know, undershirts on just to freak out the teams. I mean, those are psychological things that are a fun part of the game and the coaches can play into that. Um, And to me, anything that homogenizes that makes us lose part of the fun of this of this league that has more than 100 teams, more than 100 different kinds of offenses, more than 100 different situations. And to and to reduce it down to sort of the cream of the crop you don't realize what you're losing and how much you're damaging the sport overall. The, the rest, you know, it's those are not dead weight programs. Those are the programs that round off a wonderful sort of system. And I feel like if, if you're not paying attention to that, you're going to ruin the wonderful sort of system. Dan, um, before we let you go, I we should probably ask you a couple of history questions because, like, a lot of our listeners are history people. That's how you I know. think we've been talking about that. <laughs> it's true. I know. It's very like, true. Yeah. It's very true. We've been talking about 150, what, 153 years of history. In college football terms, we you know we talk a lot about overrated, underrated. They're ranked at four. We should be ranked at four. This kind of thing. Like this is the, the ESPN devotes uh, hundreds of hours a season to this. If you were to look at historical empires and declare one to be underrated in terms of the amount of attention we've paid to it, the amount of uh, regard we have for it, for uh, whether for its uh, accomplishments or achievements, is there an empire that stands out for you as the most underrated? Well, you have to put a, a, a qualifier on that. We'll say most underrated by us here because it's not underrated everywhere. But if you look at the history of China, and you look at the amazing dynasties they've had over the eras, it's it's top notch. It is, you know, it compares with Imperial Rome at its height. It compares with all those ones that we do talk about. And so I would say that it's all of the the various Chinese dynasties, the Han, the Jin, the, the Tang, all these wonderful dynasties that they had that where those would, if you could travel back in time, be the most advanced societies in the world. And I think people who study history know that sort of, but we don't pay enough attention to exactly how outrageously advanced and ahead of their time they were. And if you could have, you know, if we're, if we're doing this like a college football comparison, China throughout most of its history plays in a different conference than Rome and Greece. And, you know, they're on the other side of the world. But if you could have a bowl game with, let's just say, Han China against Imperial Rome, you would see, I think, that they would play... Uh, very competitively against them. And then you would see the sort of respect that they deserve. And not just the the countries and what they were capable of and the militaries and what they were capable of, but they had great generals and leaders that don't get their due because we don't pay enough attention to them in the West. There was a guy named Pan Shao who conquered so far to the West that at one point he was very close to the Imperial Romans who had conquered so far to the East. And what a link up that would have been if they could have both just gotten a little farther. So, they, so China's my answer. We, we could have just put a uh, cotton bowl right there and they could exactly, have. Exactly. Exactly. That's the national championship. Imperial Rome against Han China. And everyone raised in the Western world, we say, oh, they, they can't hang with our speed or whatever. You know, you make up some attribute that you imagine they China don't have. China ain't played and, nobody. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm much more interested in how Vegas handicaps that. You know, if we're going <laughs> to yeah. get the gambling in on the, is it is it Han China minus four? I don't know what we're dealing with here. No, I, I got to Who gets a, home field advantage or is that a neutral site? I got, okay. a, I got Han China by a full I actually, score, Dan. I actually want to know if like the last of time spent on Persia and the Byzantine Empire in schools would adversely affect the accuracy of wagers in like empire betting in Vegas. Empire like, bet- are Rome and Greece going to be unfairly weighted due oh, to yeah. American educational biases? Oh, yeah. I love it. 
Oh, people, but you know, gamblers make a killing off of that. All you have to know is, oh, this team's betting with their heart instead of their head. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, Hunter Thompson used to take the, 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 the late writer Hunter Thompson used to take great advantage of people who would come to his house and bet. And he always would find out what their favorite team was first. And then he'd go in there and start betting that way. And, and he had he, no qualms. He had no favorite teams other than, you know, whoever's going to win this bet. I think he liked the Raiders though, but, but other than that, he'd find out who you liked and then have you bet your heart strings and be holding all the money at the end of the night so if you're a if you're a fan of china and you go to vegas and you put all your money on china what'd you say minus seven yeah um, minus seven yeah well and then you got to point shave it a little bit and go well they're gonna win but they're not gonna win by seven six you know, and be, a half it'll, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll go six and a half six and a half very risky i i, I think it depends on injuries too and nobody's allowed to conceal their injuries that's the true Greeks that's and true. romans are definitely the dallas cowboys here in terms of like oh, if shit. that team's favored by a big number <laughs> jump on it <laughs> um they never come right <laughs> Dan you have talked about your history as uh, doing like war games um, like play, playing war games with friends in college and whatever like advanced stuff with lots of numbers and and, uh, and you've turned that into like you use it a lot as a storytelling element when you're talking about like comparing one era to another um, do you play like current like PC strategy games like Civilization and Total War and Hearts of Iron and any of that any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes um, Hearts of Iron. I, I, you know, I get stuck at, at, when you're over fifty. You find your favorite games, and sometimes you don't ever want to change. But then, then those games no longer work. I kept one computer in my office forever just to play uh, uh, one of the Hearts of Iron early games with a mod <laughs> attached to it. And finally, my wife said, "What is that computer doing in your office?" I go, "I need that computer to play this one game. I have to defeat right? Mussolini. And, we can't right." Get rid of that. And, and so, so the answer is, I, I do. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I don't really see football to tie this together as all that different i mean to me the reason i like football is actually in in many ways very similar to why i'm interested in tactics and strategy and warfare or boxing i mean to, whatever part of the brain that a person utilizes for those other i, I think it, it's um it's transferable or, or there's similar elements i mean i love you know, like like a quarterback on the sandlot with the, the rock and the piece of glass and and those kind of things drawing up plays. I love doing that. And to me, that's it's very similar than being someone who's trying to figure out in 1914 how to how to draw up a plan to invade France and do it in a way that cuts through Belgium. And all of a sudden, you know, you win and it's a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> that and was is there a uh... particular empire that you would categorize as having thought too much with their heart and not ha I bet too much with their heart and not with their heads I know we've we're kind of spoiled for choice here but well I would argue that very rarely do do gr large groups of people uh, uh, operate with their head um, and, and the funny thing is the occasions where you can find that very often you're dealing with somebody who's an absolute dictator um, you know Hitler and a lot of other dictators used to talk about um, one will with an entire country behind it. In other words, the, the autocrat gets to decide the direction and they choose it. And then you have a whole country backing them up where free countries are conglomerations of millions of individuals, right? Who disagree upon the strategy and the tactics. And so you are, I think, by default, uh, not following your head. I mean, a country like ours is a perfect example. We generally follow our heart. Most countries do. And, and countries that have dictators who can who can take that strategy and, and say we're going to you know follow the will of Viktor Orban or whatever it's going to be, um, that only goes so far because people can put the brakes on, right, and decide you know I know you said we're going to go here but we'd rather get rid of you 
than do that. So I think mm -hmm. ultimately all nation states uh, operate with their heart or their emotions. I think some of them have to get to a, a more higher level of dissatisfaction before they can operate that way. But I, I don't think anybody's really ruled by their head when you come to collections of large groups of people. So it's either you're ruled by one heart or millions of hearts. Well, and I think bottom line, at the end of the day, you're still ruled by millions of hearts because if you don't like, if, if the Russians decide they don't like where Vladimir Putin is going at a certain point, they do have the ability to change that. Yeah. Um, it, it requires revolutions and marches in the streets and violence and all. But bottom line is, you know, uh, Mao said that all power emanates from the barrel of a gun, but that gun is not always in the hands of the dictator. So now that we've just dipped, like we dove straight into this vein of questioning, I get to ask the one I wanted to ask. I'm giving you three slots in terms of managing this uh, historical football franchise. Okay, you can take them from anywhere in history, anywhere in leadership. I need a defensive coordinator, an offensive coordinator, and a head coach. Okay, I don't know if you're going to put Cyrus. Are we doing historical figures coaching football. Yes, or? historical okay. figures coaching football. All right, uh, because I figure that's probably the position of strength here. Right. Okay. Um, so I need a head coach, an offensive coordinator, and a defensive coordinator. I don't know if you're going to put like Cyrus the second as offensive coordinator. Um, put the organization into a good spot by picking those big three. Well, I find the head coach to be the easier gig. Uh, uh, I think that's Julius Caesar, and I realize he's going to be a popular choice. But when you read about Caesar's one of these guys that had one of these brains, supposedly he could be in a litter, which is their version of transport when you're going somewhere. Right. So they're carrying like a little a little platform that you're operating in. He could be dictating three letters at the same time to three different people. I mean, he had one of those brains where you just get the feeling that he would find out the weakness in the other side. He would build his own. I mean, he just seems like to me, he seems like a head coach already. If you actually look at the guy offensive. So offensive coordinator, I'm going to take a Mongol, even though yeah. I like a night, even though I like a nice, solid, stolid running game. And these mm -hmm. Mongols are going to be throwing all over the field. <laughs> they're just, they're so aggressive. Uh, and I, and, girls and, are like that, yeah. and yeah. innovative. So I, I think, I think that, that I would take a one, maybe Subadai, the great Mongol general is the <laughs> offensive coordinator, uh, defensive coordinator. This is a good one. Who would you want for a defensive coordinator? I'm trying to, okay. I want, you know what I'm going to take? I'm going to take an Apache. I'm going to take an Apache for a Ooh, defensive coordinator. Nice. I'm going to take somebody like a Mangus Coloradus, who's going to be somebody that every time you think you've got him beat, He's got some way of pulling a rabbit out of a hat. And this is probably something that a guy from a school that needs to pull rabbits out of a hat would look at. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe if I was an Ohio State alumni, I'd pick a different kind of defensive, like a Charlemagne. Yeah. But I'm going for some guy who's going to figure out a way to confuse you, to, to figure out I'm not going to have the biggest lineman maybe, so I've got to come at things a little bit differently, a uh, little guerrilla tactics, a little uh, subterfuge. So that's it. I'm going uh, Mangus Coloradus for the defensive coordinator. I'm going Subadai for the offensive coordinator, and I'm going uh, Julius Caesar as the head coach. Dude, I, I, love, I, I love this staff. I love this staff <laughs> more than I love most actual They're staff, killer, so yeah. aren't they? Legitimately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty unbeatable. So, Dan, just to get you out of here on this one, when people, like, recognize you in public, I'm sure this happens. Millions and millions of people have listened to your stuff. Millions and millions of people. <laughs> 
what do they come up to you and do? What do they say? What are, like, what are the things that have, the things from your work that have sort of like connected with just the average person who comes up and says hello? Oh, it's a little weird because, uh, you know, obviously I don't get recognized most places. So when it happens, it's always a little strange. And I never assume that's what it is. I, I used to do these, um, I used to do these top of the hour news things when I was a television news reporter. And, you know, so it'd be the top of the hour and you'd say, you know, coming up at 11, da, 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 da. And then I'd go eat lunch somewhere and people be staring at you. And as I told my wife, you never knew if they were staring at you because they thought they'd seen you somewhere or because you had spaghetti hanging out of your mouth. You just had no way of knowing. So I was on this flight. And again, don't get recognized very often. But I'm on this flight uh, and I come out of the restroom and I'm walking down the aisle and way down at the end of the aisle, 15, 20 rows ahead of me, I see some guy that looks like Yosemite Sam from the old Bugs Bunny cartoons or Gabby Hayes, big old 49er prospector beard. Uh, you know, And he's pointing at me, but with an angry look on his face, like an inquisitive <laughs> finger pointing at and, and I thought, okay, what did I do to this guy? I mean, I've done something. You know, his girlfriend was just in the restroom ahead of me. I mean, what is he? And I'm going, what is this? So finally I get to him and he looks mad as hell. And he just hang, holds out his hand and says, I really like your show. And I, I, I breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> but the entire plane was looking at this guy wondering what was wrong. And then when he shakes my hand, they're still as confused as I was. And then you don't know what to do, right? Do I have to say hi to this guy on my way out of the plane? Do I? I mean, you know, so, so generally it happens at times. Another guy, uh, to, to finish the story, when I got off the plane, somebody who'd seen all that just walked up behind me, tapped me on the shoulder and says, I like your work and kept on going. <laughs> but uh, but so the answer to the question is I don't get recognized very often. And when I do, it's usually somewhat strange and I'm never sure what happened. And then afterwards, I'm kind of analyzing it going, <laughs> did I know that person in high school or did they or did I have spaghetti hanging out of my mouth or or was it something to do with the podcast? Do you ever get recognized by your voice? Like, has there ever been a dude next to you at the deli being like, hey, that guy who's ordering roast beef taught me about the galls it only happened once and it happened at like a depart like a target type store or whatever i was looking for something and the employee was on a step stool uh putting stuff on the upper shelf and i said something like do you know where this is because i was i knew i was close but i hadn't found it and he picked it up and he handed it to me and said there you go dan and i looked up to him <laughs> and i said I said, uh, do we know each other? He goes, oh, no, no, I just listened to your show. And, and I, I, again, I was walking out of the place going, how did he know? But, but it was the voice. That's the only time it's ever happened. So has anybody um, just walked up and done a Dan Carlin impression? No. Can no, Jason that's never start happened. Now? I think yeah. people are afraid. I think they're afraid that I might, I might take it personally. No, they've never done that. So um, at our Michigan live show where we had kids in the crowd were calling out the names of World War II ships uh, and their exact locations. Um, it, it was a target-rich environment, it, <laughs> historically speaking. I attempted a Dan Carlin impression that because we had, like, war-gamed out the entire Big Ten, the entire Midwest was going to war. And, like, I, I focused on a few elements of it. One is, like, you, you start, like, you start low and you start low with a metaphor. <laughs> you hit them with a creative <laughs> metaphor, right? Like you, like, you start the segment with, like, what's your favorite sandwich? And then you build on that and maybe maybe you like a sandwich with a little bit of pastrami on it, right? Like, you do this, like, <laughs> this subtle staccato thing that builds drama and builds drama. And you're doing it with, like, this incredible voice that goes from, like, super deep to, like, to, like, 
adopting other voices. You did it a few minutes ago and it made me smile. Um, I forget exactly what it was, but you were like quoting a character that you were using in an argument and you like adopted this deeper voice for them. But yeah, it, 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 it was it was fun preparing for that uh, by like just just like listening to a couple hours of Dan Carlin and like, OK, what are the key things you have to do if you want to attempt a Dan Carlin impression? And like, you know, so you have I don't think I don't think people know how much artistry goes into like that kind of vocal work and i was just wondering if that's conscious or well let me clarify something let me clear up something on your show right you just yeah you just yeah you just you just did a whole imitation of him so like he gets free reign now (laughs) (laughs) no no it's podcast people will say sometimes that i sound different when i do a show like yours than i do on mine but it's not because i'm deliberately adopting some different tone or well well, maybe that is what i'm doing but it's not like this deliberate okay i have to slip into this character there's a difference between a monologue and a dialogue Mm. so i have a i had a teacher in high school theater teacher and so much of what he taught us was about how you need to sound on stage Mm -hmm. he used to talk about slow joe in the back row you know not being able to hear the consonants in your voice if you don't talk a certain way you know so there's a certain approach when you're when you're storytelling or whatnot that's part of once upon a time, you know, you tell a story, but it sounds so, so to get back to the theater teacher, but he somehow got the voice the same way he wanted you to do it in a monologue, but talked like that all the time. Right. So it sounded weird when you're just listening because in a dialogue to talk like you're on stage giving a monologue, you it, it sounds affected is, is, is the right way. So what you're hearing when we do a show where there's no other voices is you're hearing me tell you a story and you you speak differently than when you're reacting to something somebody else said or interspersing your conversation if i talked like this in the conversation with you it might seem a little weird but but that's how i that's how i would tell a story to my kid that's how I, if you're with dinner with me and i'm going to go into some long uninterrupted sort of it's going to sound like that also. So it's it's really a facet of the circumstances that we're having the conversation in. But when you say, is it a, um, a deliberate thing? If you go listen to my old shows, and I hear from people about that too, they think I've consciously changed my voice from the old shows where we talked a lot faster and a lot louder. And it's not that at all. I've just gotten older. I'm slower. <laughs> uh, the voice, you know, they, they asked Keith Jackson once, um, the great college football announcer, among other things, how he got such a great voice and they expected to hear some treaties or some class or this. And he, he said, without missing a beat, he said, Alabama whiskey and cigarettes. <laughs> and, and, and I, and, and, and I think that's, you know, um, I used to talk so fast because that's how fast my brain worked. It doesn't work that fast anymore. But the funny thing is I used to talk so fast that it was harder to listen to than it is to li- So people think I've just improved my voice when in fact I've just gotten slower and, and they think that the voice is now artificially deep. Alabama whiskey and cigarettes. I don't <laughs> smoke cigarettes, but you get my point. It's just, it's it's the effect upon it's your vocal cords of just mm-hmm. getting older and, and life. And uh, uh, you don't meet a bunch of guys who are 56 years old who talk like this. But you meet... <laughs> you, but, but when yeah. I was 28 and on the radio, I would burst your eardrums and and you you wouldn't be able... I mean, it was almost, like I said, I'm a better performer now 
in terms of a voice talent than I was then, but through almost no conscious effort of my own. I think you and you and Keith Jackson are probably my two favorite guys to say the name of a place. Like he'll, yeah. he'll hit you with Tallahassee. Tallahassee. And, and you'll break out like Kani. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be a, it would be a fun little thing to have us call a football game, but it'd be a little Dennis Miller on on uh, Monday Night Football maybe too. So sometimes <laughs> sometimes those combos don't work the way you think they'll work in theory. I only want you to know I might I do no consistent Dan Carr limitation, but when my children complain about their spoiled lives being interrupted by even a modicum <laughs> of inconvenience, I will go to them and I will say. We're not stopping at the quick trip for a snack for the second time today. Can you imagine the hardship of not stopping for a second snack? And they're like, oh, fine, Dad. This fine. isn't for done. You know yeah. what, though? It only works if you put the headphones on them, because that's the other thing that I didn't get into. when we were. And you guys know this because this is what you do for a living as well. But when you talk in this sort of a format, you are in that person's head. Right. You are right mm -hmm. there. So there's intimate, almost this. Yeah. yeah. And there's this quality of if I'm in your head, if I'm whispering in your ear, it's going to have a sort of a conspiratorial kind of tone because it's just you and me. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so once it, but that that also is is um, it dovetails into this idea of of a, a dialogue versus a monologue. When you and I are having this this private conversation. It's going to sound different than if I'm speaking to an entire room, right? So so all these things are just different versions of your own voice, just like you have different versions of your own voice when you talk quietly to a small child. Then when, you, when you're talking to your pet, maybe, or your spouse or your professor, those may all be different variations of your voice, depending on, you know, who, who you're marketing it towards at the moment. This is all my way of putting in my favorite bit of playbook verbiage ever. I just want to have a package called Starfish Prime. <laughs> which is after the atmospheric nuclear tests where they shot them into space only because one of them went off like 50 miles too low and Whoops. it knocked out the radio for a day and a half and they thought they had blown themselves up like Honolulu couldn't call them they were, and you could see it like I think I think from Honolulu there was like a visible light of like oh no what did they do and like a day and a half later they called and they were like yeah we're all right it was a little traumatic is there a fullback in the starfish prime Oh yeah, yeah. No, we we do an H back, H back. See, I'm 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 more like an evolved H back spread formation. We take the H back, we use them as the fullback. They pick up the uh, whoever the LT is on that. You know, I've thought a lot about this, Dan. I've thought a lot about what this package would look like. You guys, thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. I I I could talk football all day long with you guys. Well, come back, come back sometime, and we'll see how the new we'll see how the new Pac-12 is treating everybody. Yeah, yeah. we'll see what happens. I, I have a feeling we're not going to have uh, my I may not live long enough to see stability in college football again. College football, stop killing Dan Carlin. Yeah, thank please. you. There's a T-shirt in there somewhere. <laughs> You guys, thank you so much. Let me know if there's anything I can do to spread the word about this. And, and keep keep up the great work. And thanks for having me on. Thank you, Dan. Hey, likewise, this was fun. Thanks thank so you, much. Dan. A lot of fun. Stay safe, y'all. That was awesome. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I'm going to tell people I'm a film enthusiast. Fuck, I love Mongols. That's what it stands for. Dude, when he said uh, Mongols, it went all of us fist bumps. <laughs> 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 <laughs>